Hello and welcome to the Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype right to the heart of the big issues of the day. You only have to switch on your radio or television, browse your usual news sites or pick up a favourite journal or newspaper to gauge the extent to which today's agenda is dominated by the dreadful and destructive conflict in Ukraine. Looking beyond the appalling human cost, an urgent humanitarian crisis gripping Eastern Europe, the conflict in Ukraine has sent global equity markets tumbling, increased commodity prices and caused dislocations in oil and gas price and supply. More broadly, it's also prompted a reframing of the narrative around energy transition and dependency. That ongoing volatility across Ukraine and the huge uncertainties that surround the situation on the ground, and more broadly, prompt some fairly urgent reflections on how all of these themes act to influence or to maybe reshape the broader conversation around climate, energy, sustainability and the road to net zero. This week on the show, we're taking a deeper dive into carbon and exploring this emerging sustainable asset. What is it? How does it work? What drives the market? And what does investment in this sector look like? Of course, that whole narrative needs to be viewed through the prism of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the impact of that conflict across markets, energy, sustainability and more. Well, joining me today to provide that context and then to train a lens on carbon pricing as a longer term theme is Stephanie Choi, Sustainable and Impact Investing Strategist at UBS CIO in Hong Kong. Stephanie Choi, great to talk with you. And we are going to be discussing today carbon pricing, a highly complex and really significant thematic, which we've touched upon before. We're going to drill down into some more detail and talk about the content of some longer term research and reports that I know you've authored and co-authored. I guess it is impossible to escape the sort of elephant in the room, which is something that's been the topic of several recent programs of ours, of course, the situation in, in Ukraine, this this dreadful war, all the volatility that go, goes with that. Not to get bogged down in the complexity and the unpredictability which is innate in an event of that magnitude, that scale, and not to sort of gloss over, obviously, the very immediate human challenge, which is what preoccupies everybody. Nonetheless, we just need to sort of put, I guess, a little bit of context around this. It underscores this point, doesn't it, that the most well-intentioned plans and the most detailed research can always be slightly sort of blown out of the water by, you know, geopolitics, uh, volatility of one sort or another. It's important just to understand that and acknowledge it, isn't it, before we talk in more broad terms about the longer term themes. Yes, and and to be fair, I do think that the current uh, challenges have highlighted and really kind of challenged some misperceptions in the market around what carbon prices represent or or what they can do. As you mentioned, you know, that there's huge humanitarian costs and impact from the war and obviously environmental impact as well. But specifically with regards to our current focus of kind of talking about impact on carbon trading, I think the main thing is that with the dislocations that have happened in the oil and gas markets, and most precisely gas, that means that most European countries are expected to go back to coal as a primary fuel source for the coming months. And obviously this would dramatically raise the emission load 
that Europe is anticipated to to deliver this year. This is not necessarily something new. If you look at over the past six months, with natural gas prices having squeezed up already, that has already made you know natural gas cost like less cost competitive versus cheaper alternatives like coal. And so, if you look at the you know towards the end of last year, we've already seen kind of coal use and emissions load go up. So normally. This would mean that if you know if carbon emissions across the board in the region go up, then the companies that source power from these power generators would then also emit much more carbon, and they would have to pay up for that pollution. Um, that's how the regulatory systems work. But I think because of the geopolitic <laughs> geopolitical uh, threat. Like the, the nature of this challenge right now, that there are politicians who are lobbying very aggressively against imposing this penalty on companies, right? Because it's not it's not really their choice, and the magnitude and pace of this price squeeze have left companies very little choice. So this is why you know I think if you look at European carbon pricing, it, it was very very bullish at one point. It hit a peak. Of 97 euros per ton of carbon dioxide in February, which actually represents a fourfold jump year on year, but it has since retraced, like with the outbreak of the war, down to the 50s and recovering to the 60s, 70s levels right now, because I think the investors are rightly, you know, quite uncertain about the political commitment. That you know, all the nations would have to enforcing this at huge cost to their companies. And secondly, I think also because of this uncertainty, companies are less interested in hedging for future carbon pricing burden uh, for this year. So a, a big part of that hedging demand has been taken out of the market. Yeah, it's really interesting, and I suppose it also prompts this reflection that. If we take a sort of a, a further step back, almost, and look at these, you know, really big secular trends that inform so many of the conversations that I have with colleagues of yours on this program, you know, one of them is about, you know, the rise of, of green tech, this broader question about energy security, sustainability, and I suppose all of the volatility, and you've described it so well there, it does underscore the fact, particularly if we have a period where commodity prices are are very high for a sustained period there'll be more focus on those themes. Energy security, energy independence, of course, very important in the context of the conflict. And with this broader desire to see a reduction in carbon emissions, is it fair to say that despite the short-term volatility and uncertainty, there is still this broad favouring of investment in green technologies, clean air, various carbon reduction solutions, not just the pricing, but across the board. They still remain critically, sort of strategically important, right? Correct. And as you say, if we take the long view, then directionally, if you look at the announcements coming out of European countries in response to the energy crisis, like the energy part of this crisis, I guess, it's clear that the intention to accelerate investments into uh, renewable energy, energy transition. And I think what's more interesting is that politicians, for the first time, are actually seriously pushing 
for lifestyle changes of everyday consumers. So this has always been seen as, you know, politically difficult. You know, it's also quite an unwieldy policy tool, right? Because it's very hard to enforce that everyone has to drive at a certain speed limit. Um, everyone has to keep heating or air conditioning like within strict temperature limits. You know, all of these actually rely on everyday consumers change. And that is not, you know, despite the political difficulty or the, or the practical difficulty of implementing this, politicians are actually pushing for this, which indicates kind of how desperate they are to try and accelerate this weaning off of fossil fuels. I think the reality, though, is that with green tech, it's, you know, we have been bullish on this for multiple years. It, it is a long-term theme. And I think the demand outlook for green tech has always been very clear. What is not clear is, you know, supply chain maturity. I think we've discussed this before as well, which is that, you know, if you look, for example, last year in the solar supply chain, you saw this huge demand spike. And, and that, that played a big part in kind of squeezing up polysilicon prices. So polysilicon being, you know, the primary raw material for solar panels, the fact that prices, you know, more than double tripled, it actually squeezed all the costs and capacity downstream because companies are not able to profitably grow. And as a result, that actually contained or confined the growth in solar panels delivery last year. So I would say that it's quite easy to say that, oh, this is, you know, this clearly very strong for global demand, or especially for European demand. But is the supply chain, are the various supply chains possible to meet this demand? I think that that is where the big question is um, for investors who want to, you know, invest directly into the steam. Yeah, well, let, let's kind of, I'm aware that I keep sort of prompting us to take further steps back and at the risk of re- reversing mm. kind of out, out of sight. Just remind us, I guess, about if we're talking about carbon pricing and we've set so much helpful context, I think, already. If we sort of go back to, you know, I was reading a, a really instructive report that you authored, Stephanie, back, I think, towards the end of, of last year, in fact. Just summarise it for us. Remind us why exactly carbon pricing is, without the current concerns, such a powerful tool, because it is very effective, isn't it, at aligning the intention around reduced emissions with business activity. Just explain to us why carbon pricing is a good tool to try and do that. Yes. And, and, and you know, if, if I take a further step back, you know, back into kind of university days of, you know, economics 101, the whole point of carbon emissions and pollution in general is that it is a classic case of an externality. So what this means is that the producer of this carbon, so the polluter, doesn't directly bear the cost of this, right? So companies through their business activities and industrial production processes, they emit carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. These greenhouse gases accelerate global warming, which is borne by society as a whole, but they themselves are not held accountable to it. So the idea of carbon pricing is to establish a price on carbon such that you're holding polluters accountable to it. And if you look at kind of the direction of, of where it's taken, you know, there's 
governments who are trying to impose this carbon pricing effectively a taxation on companies that emit carbon and it can be shaped as you know straightforwardly as as if it's a tax in the case of a tax you want it to be very very high you know in order to actually bite and also to actually generate any change right because you know if if the carbon pricing is not sufficiently high then companies may choose to just absorb the cost instead of actually implementing emissions reduction strategies the other alternative and that is probably the the one that is most in focus of the market is an emissions trading system where the government gives allowances for polluting and these allowances are freely tradable within the the corporates that are in scope of the regulation so the the companies actually have to buy or sell their allowances on hand to support whatever emissions they're expected to deliver in a certain year so this means that if the carbon pricing for example in europe have gone up four times you know from last year to this february then it creates a very strong financial incentive for companies to accelerate their emissions reductions because the tradable nature of this creates uncertainty and uncertainty encourages companies to make uh, you know more aggressive preemptive risk mitigation strategies so that is how you know the carbon pricing is supposed to kind of translate into actual progress in decarbonization yeah and then let's talk a little bit about some of the kind of carbon markets backdrop here there are two main categories i guess to sort of simplify things slightly both of which are relevant and have and different sort of facets that are interesting and this distinction between regulatory carbon markets and voluntary markets maybe stephanie you can remind us what the well what those both are and the key differences between them Regulatory markets are, you know, as I mentioned, it, it's effectively a tax, and the nature of the credits or allowances, as we refer to them, these allowances are basically permissions to pollute. They're digital assets; they do not represent anything. They are just certificates that is, um, you know, it's, it's the right to pollute, right? Whereas, you know, voluntary markets, you know, most people refer to them as carbon offsets. So, for example, when you fly, um, your airline would typically offer you, you know, after you've paid for your um, ticket, uh, an option to offset the carbon footprint that you have generated through the flight. So, this is um, there is a, a separate concept. This is entirely voluntary in nature, and it appeals to consumers and companies who want to. Invest in positive carbon sequestration or removal. So these offsets actually represent real carbon that has already been sequestered. Sequestering, like meaning, like it's been absorbed away from the atmosphere. So the underlying asset of these offsets can be, you know, it can be forests. It can be、uh, renewable energy projects like solar farms. It can even be, you know, at the most technologically advanced stage, it can be technologies that actually drain out carbon from the atmosphere. So the concepts are fundamentally very different in that the regulatory market is trying to reduce emissions, whereas the other one is trying to reward for the saving up of. You know, carbon sequestration potential. 
it's always instructive to reflect briefly on the sort of meaning of this for for, for investors, Stephanie. Uh, what are kind of the primary risks if we're talking about these background thematics in terms of investment? And I and I guess I wonder, therefore, you know. What is the role that, you know, carbon as a sort of broad brush thematic should be playing in SI portfolios as people look towards the future? So for investors, I think this is still a very nascent part of the industry insofar as a lot of the products would tend to be very young. The markets themselves are also very volatile. So if you look at even, you know, the European ETS market, which is the most mature the volatility uh, is like 40 to 60%. So, you know, it, it, it is going to be a roller coaster ride, despite the fact that, you know, over the past year, it, it's performed very positively. I would say that, so on top of normal kind of due diligence of considering carefully, you know, the individual investment strategies in the context of what else is available, right? That all of these would, kind of qualifies higher risk within our investment perspective, partly because of the nature of the markets, partly because the products will be young. And then I think for investors who wish to invest in it from a sustainability or impact contribution standpoint, I think you have to really think about what you want to achieve here, right? So for example, if you invest in the regulatory carbon markets, as I mentioned, they're basically rights to pollute, right? So if you're just trading in and out of these, it doesn't actually necessarily generate any net positive impact insofar as the minute you sell it, you know, the, the, when you buy it off of someone, yes, you're preventing pollution from happening. But the minute you sell it back into the market, you're allowing that pollution to happen. So basically, in order to actually say that, hey, I've contributed to emissions reduction, you have to be prepared to hold this, these allowances for at least one compliance cycle, right? So you've stopped people, you've stopped companies, real companies from using that to justify real emissions. And that, you know, takes a flexible investment mandate to have a holding period constraint on a very high risk asset. And then in terms of the, and as we we've highlighted at the start, which is, you know, there's, there are ge- geopolitical risks, there are, there are regulatory concerns. The regulatory market hinges entirely on policies. So if these policies are to change, then the entire asset could disappear overnight. Now, obviously, this is not our base case. We do believe that, you know, our view remains that the decarbonization commitment and really the, the, there's really no optionality. There's no way the EU government can say that, you know, we're, we're going off of carbon pricing, like, you know, completely. I think it's just that, you know, there still remains kind of uncertainty in the near to medium term about the pace of deployment or, you know, temporary um, policy relaxations. These are all, you know, these, these will all present as potential investment risks. And for, you know, truly impact-focused investors, you may be more interested in voluntary carbon projects, right? Because you're actually net rewarding projects that are making a difference to the carbon budget in the world right now. 
But here, it's the direct opposite. This market is entirely unregulated and it's not very standardized, which means that the, the project risk, individual project risk is much higher. And as such, the due diligence has to be much deeper. And I would say that, you know, the, the earlier stage you can go into it, the more attractive the overall potential impact and return but you know along with it brings the, the heightened risk as well so i do think that it is a very exciting area prices have gone up very dramatically over the past year um just even over the past year and we do think that the medium to long-term outlook uh, remains very compelling However, we would warn that investors wishing to invest in this must be prepared for risks and volatility. And they must also be prepared to, you know, really put in the effort to understand very carefully what they have invested in. Stephanie Choi. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monocle 24. You can listen again and find out more at monocle.com or catch up via your preferred podcast platform. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle24.